Welcome to Best Picture This, where it is always Oscar season. I'm Mike. And I'm Brian. In this show, we reevaluate every Best Picture nominee from the 21st century and decide whether to keep it or kick it from its Oscar pedestal. And after recording all of our past episodes in Florida, Brian, I moved us to London for this one <laughs> in hopes of injecting this show with some new life. A last second switch across <laughs> the pond. I like that. Yeah. So let's hear your best British accent. Uh, we'll save that for later. <laughs> Okay. All right. That's, you know what? It's not good, but it's not, it's not bad. <laughs> On the spur of the moment. Yeah. I, I didn't even practice that. No, it's good. Okay. So in 2005, the nominees for Best Picture were Good Night and Good Luck, Capote, Brokeback Mountain, Munich, and Crash. But today, as luck would have it, our eyes have wandered to another title from the year, the movie Matchpoint, the director, Woody Allen. Here's the trailer. The man who said I'd rather be lucky than good saw deeply into life. Oh, my God. It's huge. We're going to get lost in here. Yeah, look at you, Good bro. see you. Yeah, it looks like you're doing all right for yourself, Thanks. aren't you? I got married. Very nice. Family's got nothing but money. He saw me across the room, and he honed in on me like a guided missile. Chris? It's been over a week since we made love. Oh, Chloe, I'm B. You're gonna do very well for yourself. Unless you blow it. And how am I going to blow it? By making a pass at me. So you are aware of your effect on men? I think I'd be something very special. And are you? No one's ever asked for their money back. I don't think this was a good idea. You shouldn't have followed me here. Do you feel guilty? Do you? Are you having an affair? Of course I'm not. Don't be silly. I don't know what I'd do if I couldn't see you. I mean it. I don't know what I'm doing with you. You're never gonna leave, Chloe. Maybe I will. Stop playing games with me. Keep your voice down. I don't fool myself that I haven't gotten used to a certain kind of living. Am I supposed to give it all up? Do you miss me? Be mad calling me here. If you don't have the nerve to do it, I'll do it. So you're threatening me? If I don't do what you say, you're going to go to my wife. Hello? Who keeps calling? You have to protect me. My family, my marriage is at stake. You lied to me. You're a liar! You can learn to push the guilt under the rug and go on. Otherwise, it overwhelms you. Is that it? <laughs> is there ever a, uh, a a kiss in the movie that wouldn't be improved by just tons of pouring rain? <laughs> you know, I think most kisses Isn't... would be improved without rain. It's enough <laughs> with the rain already. I don't understand it. I was I was talking to my wife the other day because like three or four country songs in a row mm -hmm. mentioned kissing in the rain, and uh, it's like what what's the deal with kissing in the rain? You would think we'd hit a point as I, a culture where I, we'd say I always preferred we dryness, you know, dry covering shelter. Yeah. Also, it's, I just have to note because every time this comes up, I have to say something. This movie, I mean, this trailer has songs in it that nothing are, to do. This movie totally has like wrong. nothing but opera. I know for the entire I score, know. and this trailer has no. Which is opera. one of the coolest things about the. Oh, it's great! Yeah. It's great. All right, so Woody Allen. 
was nominated for Best Writing Original Screenplay. That was the only Oscar that it uh, got a nomination for. It didn't win any. Um, it was nominated for Best Motion Picture Drama for the Golden Globes. Scarlett Johansson was nominated for Supporting Actress. Uh, Woody Allen was nominated for Best Director in the Golden Globes. And it was nominated for Best Screenplay. It was made for $15 million, made 85 so what was I think uh, so it made for half of uh, the last movie we just history did of History of Violence and it made 20 million more than History of Violence interesting coming up in the show Farley Awards Golden Takes Questions Imagine What Might Have Been We'll Talk Trivia and The Big Reveal Will This Make Your Top 5 but first our Farley Awards for the most awesome moment of the movie and for me the most awesome thing about this movie mm-hmm. is its setting in London I brought it up to, at the top of the show because mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. it's that important mm-hmm. um, to what it means to Woody Allen's career. So as you know, I'm a huge fan I do. of Woody Allen's You're a student. Movies. I am a student. A scholar. I'm a scholar of Woody Allen's films. How many How many letterboxed uh, Woody Allen movies do you have? All of them. So there's got... How many is that? 30, 40? Like 50-ish. 50 movies yeah. on letterboxed. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's not including, including ones I've seen multiple times. <laughs> so, arguably you have, too many. You have uh, many... Woody Allen viewings. I do. In your past. I, I do, I do. And this is the first one in London. It's the first one ever. First ever. one not in Manhattan. Yes. All no, of his other movies were in <laughs> were in New York. So I thought summer in space. <laughs> you know. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> um, but the, one of the reasons I think that I'm in such a big fan is because of how sort of deeply and directly he explores grand philosophical questions, mm. unanswerable questions, Brian, of course. which are my favorite to talk about. If they're answerable, about. then what's the point? Honestly, that's why I chose my major. I'm like, I don't want right <laughs> and wrongs. I just want to write stuff and, you know, just do that. Um, but he does it in sort of an interesting way, I think, where he uses very similar story devices over and over. So he mm. might write about adultery over and over and over from movie to that movie. That does come up a lot in his movies. A lot, yeah. <laughs> and... It's in service, though, to different ideas. Yeah. You know, not I don't, want, I don't want to say every time, but mm-hmm. often it's in service to different ideas, which kind of gives him a signature, I think. But Match Point comes out in a super lull in his career. And to my count, anyway, this is his first sort of great movie in like 13 years. The Husbands and Wives being the last one in like 92, I believe. This is the first one he's ever made out of New York. So the surroundings are different, but also just as importantly or more, I think, are the line readings of these actors because you get so used to the cadence of how Woody Allen talks and mm-hmm. writes and then it just feels like every actor is kind of just a surrogate for him in the movies. Yeah. And I think just getting him out of his comfort zone renews so much of what I love about about his work and sort of, I think it renews his creative seriousness in a way. So Match Point, another adultery movie. <laughs> But more than that, it's a movie about class and ambition. But more than that, it's a movie about justice and morality. And even more than that, Brian, it's a movie about the power of luck. Mm -hmm. All because he moved out of New York. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think the screenplay was actually pretty well done before he decided to move it out. Yeah, I mean, we'll get to it's all wrapped up in this in this like very cool erotic thriller. Mm -hmm. But there's there's more. There's more. So my Farley Award is the Crime and Punishment Connection. And I think this is what made me um, think. So, I mean, there, there's a lot of kind of very well done dramas about uh, affairs mm-hmm. that, you know, there's a long history in mo- you know, movies all about it. But I think I had recently read 
Crime and Punishment, the, mo- the book by Dostoevsky, before watching this movie. And I had no idea that there was any connection. So then, like about 10 minutes in, you see that, uh, and I can never remember, Jonathan Reese Myers as Chris Wilton, the, basically the main character. He's reading Crime and Punishment. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. You know, yeah. a little Easter egg in there. And then they bring it up again. Pat, uh, Brian Cox, who is very does he is great in acting as uh, Alec, Logan Roy in Succession. Alec Hewitt. What's that? He's Logan Roy in Succession okay. right now. So he mentions, oh, we had a great discussion about Dostoevsky. And I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. But two times in one movie, too much. And then basically the whole murder scene is a reenactment of crime and punishment. And it just made me think so much about like, what is the relationship between life and art? And I think there's a lot of that in Woody Allen, you know, over the, over the years, I haven't seen all of them like you have, but, um, so is he imitating the murder? Like, did he get the idea from it? It sure seems like that's, that, that, that's suggested, um, by the fact that he's been reading it. Um, but it also, so, so the danger of life imitating art or the, the, the allure to imitate art, um, the seductiveness of imitating art, um, you know, all that stuff is wrapped up. And again, none of it is answered, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's just so thought provoking. There's so much there. And that's one of the things that I love about this movie. Have you seen Crimes and Misdemeanors? Yes, I have, but it's been a long time. Because this is sort of like a spiritual sequel to that mm. anyway. The, the plot is very, very, very similar. But just kind of like what I was saying earlier, if you can put those movies side by side and say that the, the story arc um, looks the same on paper, but that movie is about sort of um, whether or not there is a, an absolute um, moral universe, mm-hmm. uh, you know, an absolute morality, or if we can create our own personal moral universes, so it's kind of more about our interior lives. This is exterior, right? Mm-hmm. This is about a police search, search. This is about what can go right and wrong depending on um, you know, how things fall over the net, basically. And that can decide whether or not somebody is guilty, which decides how we see them. So the other thing that I wondered about is just like you're, you know, it's interacting with crime and, uh, crime and Punishment, mm-hmm. uh, the book, um, some people also saw the similarities to Theodore Dreiser's novel, An American Tragedy, which as I've also read. It's huge, long. I didn't really love it. But it's also about like, you know, a similar kind of a plot, essentially. But so it's interacting with these great novels. And he's famous for loving all the Russian novelists, right? So, but it also seems like he's, he's, he's aware of his role in 20th century movie making. Woody Allen. I mean, he's a giant of Woody, of movie making in his career. It seems it seems like there's a a self consciousness of how the, this movie will interact with his also his previous movies. Just like you're saying, crime, crimes and misdemeanors. And there's like a an image of him in the background of the movie. I, I I didn't catch it, but I read about it afterward that he has like his own face on a poster in the background. I don't know if you know. Does this sound familiar? No. I read about that. I didn't catch it when it was going through, but but imi- his own movie potentially imitating his own his own art also seems to be wrapped up in it. But I think also reading these works, it's, it's it comes back to another common theme in his work about about um, exploring the way that intellectuals live and think mm-hmm. and how they're able to rationalize away any sort of problem. Depending on the way that you look at it, you can kind of make something work for you or not. 
Um, and I think by reading these sort of great works, that informs the way that they can build their own personal moral universe to say, mm -hmm. I read Crime and Punishment. I, I agree with this guy. You know, God is dead. And then I could, that means I can do whatever I want as long as I can get away with it. Mm -hmm. But we'll get into that. Golden takes. <laughs> What's your golden take, Mike? So my golden take is that Scarlett Johansson was really, really interesting in the early 2000s. It's kind of a straight line between Ghost World, Lost in Translation, and this. Mm -hmm. And she does Vicky Cristina Barcelona in 2008. And I just think that she had such this unique quality where she was kind of sad, kind of funny. She plays kind of old, but also kind of young. And we've seen her basically for the past decade play Black Widow. And yeah. she's been an action movie star. But I, what I think is the most interesting about that, though, is if you look back at these characters that she was playing in the early 2000s, the similarity to them is that they're all a little bit lost and misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Here, appreciated only for her appearance. And I think that once she becomes Black Widow, her career kind of like falls into that trap a little bit where that that is sort of all that she... It, can do. But I mean, this is a really interesting actress. And in 2019, she made both Marriage Story and Jojo Rabbit. I think that was the year after or the year of Endgame. So right when she's kind of done with that line. Mm -hmm. And I hope that that's the start of her returning to drama, because I think that it's what she's best at by far. Both of those movies you just said, Jojo Rabbit, Marriage Story. Superb. Yeah. Um, also, it's strange to go to Black Widow because she's not, I mean... It's not that I would say she seems very average athletically, I guess, mm -hmm. to become like the action, you know, the female action star of the decade of, you know, in the Avengers. Um, I think in the movies that we're talking about from like Ghost World to here, she's kind of also girl next door, a little bit awkward sometimes, um, you know, very pretty and, you know, very approachable and all that stuff. All that, But but to go from there to like the, you know, sprinting in spandex through, you know, through the city, it seems kind of an odd, odd choice in a way. Yeah. But and looking through her filmography during that Marvel time, she also did Under the Skin and Her. But those were kind of the only two She's not even in Her. Yeah. It's, it's just her <laughs> it's voice. her voice, right? yeah. So I, that's almost a decade where I yeah. think that she kind of only did two interesting dramas. Yeah. That's, inter that's, that's a shame. It is. It's a real shame. I mean, but the she's Avenger, still young and she can still very have a whole career. In, so true. Her. And I think probably she made some money. Oh, she made a ton of money. <laughs> she's, she's doing all right. Uh, so my golden take is to talk the, the hunting scene mm, yeah. compliments quite a bit. The film's comment on what justice is all about mm -hmm. um, because it shows you the fact that, okay, so spoiler, uh, <laughs> like we haven't already had spoilers, <laughs> but you know, after the murder, um, both of these women that, um, John, Jonathan Reese Myers kills, um, another movie of getting away with murder, which we love we talk a lot about these movies. Mm -hmm. Um, they come back and sort of haunt him and it shows you one that there is some kind of existence after death. And in a, hmm. in, in a world of lots of kind of like, you know, flirting with atheism versus belief and all that, here you have like these two spirits that are coming back to him. I don't think that those are supposed to be delusions. I think that they're supposed to be like, these are their after death souls that are coming back to him. That's my, that's my take on hmm. it. Um, and 
also you realize that, of, you know, of course he's like racked with guilt, um, but there's going to be some justice, even though the law is not going to, to punish him, mm-hmm. he is going to be punished probably forever by these Man. haunted spirits. You are optimistic and you're, you're, <laughs> you're answering my question kind of right. um, before I even have to ask it, okay. because I see them coming back not to haunt him so much as just personifications of of what he's working through and i'm mm. and i'm sort of careful to not use the word guilt there because yeah. i think that once he does work through that he's going to put that in a drawer and it's possible that he that he never has to i, I cannot that. see that i cannot see that so my question was gonna be <laughs> okay Ty burr boston globe what begins as a directorial fresh start becomes a statement on misanthrop on <laughs> every time <laughs> on misanthropy that isn't artistically insightful so much as it's resolute. And I don't agree, but mm-hmm. I get where he's coming from because I think that the sort of message of this movie is that God is dead, morality is make believe, and karma is a fairy tale. You feel like that's the message of the movie? Or that's I think the message is I think the the movie is sort of about faithlessness. And I think that Woody Allen explores that in a bunch of different ways and a bunch mm-hmm. of different movies throughout his catalog. Whether or not you're, you want to say that he's trying to send that message to me as a viewer, I don't see it that way. I see it as him working through what does it mean to live in a universe where maybe there is no higher power. So, so directing that at you, mm-hmm. knowing the way that you watch movies yeah. and um, you know live your life, <laughs> <laughs> how do you sort of... <laughs> Uh, relate to movies whose philosophies sort of clash so much with your personal worldview, but I think that you're already answering that. Well, I think that, first first of all, I see movies and all kinds of art as, I, I, I separate it to some degree. On one hand, I separate it from my own personal belief. I believe in God. I believe, you know, uh, I'm a Christian. And I separate it because I think that it's, it's just fascinating what everybody thinks and what everybody believes, mm-hmm. you know, I'll, there's no end to, um, you know, the, the interest in human psychology. So, um, if someone is completely atheistic and puts out a movie that seems to promote that or almost to convince you, first of all, that's usually more boring art. Yeah. But I think if tr- it's trying to convince yeah, you, if, if it's exploring if it's exploring it, what one, I think that's, that's totally fascinating. Um, and in some ways that is a, a, a sense of searching for, for truth, you know, and putting out these questions that are maybe unanswerable. Um, but so I, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't hold that against, you know, if Woody Allen is an atheist, that doesn't mean I'm not going to watch his movies. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, to me, I think that he is sort of hedging by having these spirits come back and haunt him because are they, I mean, I don't. I don't think that they're delusional. I don't think he's delusional. Um, Jonathan Reese Myers, uh, Chris Wilton. Is it Chris Wilton? Chris, I think. Chris Wilton. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that that there's necessarily evidence in the movie that says that these are figments of of his imagination. Um, I, I don't think there's evidence necessarily that they are really spirits coming back to haunt him either. I think it's it's a question, and in a way, it doesn't really matter. Somehow these presences in his life are still with him and is that is that is that how some people think of like you know what what it means to die and i, I think that's all interesting whether mm. what, what what whether whether you 
believe that that is a soul and has like a future judgment at stake. You know, I don't know. But again, there's so much about judgment in the movie. It, it, there's the law is not going to prosecute him. Probably, you know, mm-hmm. he, he got away with murder. Yeah. Um, so what is he, what, what is, uh, what is his future with this? To me, he is like on the verge of nervous breakdown right after the murder. He's in the car, he's crying. He's, you know, he, he can't pull himself together practically. He barely does to kind of keep up the facade. But, um, I don't think that he's ever going to just forget that he killed people. And how do you, how does anybody live with that and not, you know, have it come? It's going to come to his mind every day for the rest of his life, in my opinion. Wow. Yeah. I mean, don't you think so? No, I, I definitely don't. I, I think he's just going to forget about it and like he, it never happened. I don't think he's going to forget about it, but I think that you find a way to live with it. So it's, you know, it might haunt him if we want to use that word yeah. for a certain amount of time. But I see that scene as just, um, a cinematic device, a, a way for for Woody Allen to kind of um, deal with the implications of that act without saying, don't worry, culture took care of it, the system isn't broken, he's behind bars now, or saying he got away with it and everything's fine. It shows that, you know, this is a thinking person. He's not a sociopath, yeah. but he has to figure out a way to compartmentalize what he did because the the next door neighbor says, well, what about me? I didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. I was completely innocent in this. I, I barely knew you. And he calls her collateral damage. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care about her. I think that that is, I think that's us seeing that's, how he is going to process and rationalize this problem away. If he truly believes your collateral damage and has no care for her whatsoever, then he is a sociopath. I'm not saying he has no care for her whatsoever, but I think that he's got to tell himself something in order to live with this. And if you can tell yourself the right things for a long enough time, who says that you have to suffer? I mean, I, I think that it's <laughs> I think that it's very optimistic to look at it and say, because we got one scene of him grappling with doing something terrible, that he's going to be repeating this cycle for the rest of his life. I think that that's us forcing our own perspective, forcing the movie through the prism of our own perspective. Um, well... He did not have to put them in that movie. No. That that is a shock. That's kind of a shocking addition that they appear. Yeah. So to me, I think that uh, the the fact that they're in there says, um, I mean, it's one of the last things that you see. I think it's supposed to be a pretty dramatic statement on on uh on what he's what he's what he's living with. I don't think that's me projecting the fact that I think that people exist after they die. But wow, who knows? Um. So what do you make of the last line? Because then they have a baby. Yep. He's sort of um, completing his his arc, if you want to say, with this new life. You know, mm-hmm. he started as a, sort of a lower class person. He married up and now he's having a baby, which like cements him in to this upper class lifestyle. And he got rid of his problem, yep. Scarlett Johansson. And then somebody says, this baby is going to be great. And the last line of the movie is, um, I think Matthew Good is his name. Says he's, something he's like, good in the movie too. I I don't care if he's great. I just want him to be lucky. Yeah. Because theoretically, this uh, Chris, our main character, Chris Wilton, is lucky. So do you see that as sarcastic? Like he's lucky to get away with it, but I he's, think... he's not lucky because he's going to be racked with guilt. How do you see that line? I think that I thought when, when I heard the line, I thought that Chris Wilton was lucky in the sense that the the evidence of his crime 
bounced in such a way that it got he got away with it. That that's one way that he's very lucky. Mm-hmm. He's also very lucky that he happened to bump into the right people and get into this life in the first place. Yep. I think that it's not a conclusive final line. It's a complex ending and it's open, mm-hmm. which are some of the best movies that you can make. Yeah. So I don't think that I don't think that um it's supposed to say um I, I don't know. I, I think that it's it's ambiguous, just like so many other things in the movie. What do you think? Um I, I, I think it's it's having a dialogue with crimes and misdemeanors. And mm-hmm. I think that both movies are exploring this idea of um is it possible to live with yourself if you if you've done something terrible? You know, basically, will the world correct itself? Will it, will the world punish you? Or if you've gotten away with something, you know, legally, lawfully, however you phrase that, <laughs> um, are you able to sort of unburden yourself from that? I think that's a really good, unanswerable question mm-hmm. because they're, it's, it's, so, it's so complex, you know? But they appear to him. Yeah. So there's got to be, I mean, he's, Woody Allen is putting them in. Anyway, we, 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 we were repeating ourselves. You know? We are repeating ourselves, <laughs> but I, I love an ending like this so where you can really think through um, not only what the director is trying to say, but then how you feel about that and then try to sort of parse through different interpretations. That's, that's my favorite kind of movie. What do the characters think about their own lines and their own actions? What does the director think about those lines and their own actions? And what does the director think that the audience is going to, how, how does the director think the audience is going to interpret it all mm-hmm. when those are all different and, and there's, there's clearly thought going into from the, from the writer's perspective into how all those, you know, dynamics are working. That's, it's just, it's very high level filmmaking. Very complicated. Um, questions. Where does this rank on Woody Allen's movie list? Um, I would, I would definitely put it on the on the great list. I, I'm, I'm top not, five. Uh, top five Woody Allen. I, I kind of did a quick think through <laughs> this earlier, and Crimes and Misdemeanors is up there. Annie Hall's up there. Um, Husbands and Wives, Purple Rose of Cairo. This. I think they're all in the same group. I wouldn't put this in the same level as Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very different movie from Annie it, Hall. Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. And Annie Hall is experimental in a way that this one is not. Mm-hmm. Um, Annie Hall's got jokes. This one has zero jokes. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I definitely wouldn't put it in tip top tier, but I think it belongs in the discussion of, of his best. Mm-hmm. Um, what might have been? There's only one here. So this movie was originally supposed to star Kate Winslet. And um, so it was going to be in London mostly because BBC was going to finance it and he couldn't get American companies to finance it. That's Mm. really why it's over there. But Kate Winslet was supposed to be another, it was all British people. Yeah. So when Kate Winslet um, had to back out, Scarlett Johansson was offered the part, but the problem was, She's American. So it had to be rewritten for her as an American. And Woody Allen said this, quote, it was not a problem. It took about an hour, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) He's written a few movies before. He knows how to tweak those little knobs and make it work. Okay, so trivia. The film's soundtrack. We haven't talked about this except Mm -hmm. a brief mention of it. But 
The film's soundtrack consists almost entirely of pre-World War I, 78 RPM recordings of opera arias sung by the Italian tenor Enrico Caruso, Hmm. which when those are playing on top of all these, you know, so many different types of scenes, including the murder scene, it's just... It's beautiful. Yeah, I love it's the scoring. so and, well done. And it's a mix of that and silence. Yes. Plays with silence so much throughout mm-hmm. this, and it's, it's, it's great. Um, it's the first Woody Allen movie since Hannah and Her Sisters, 1986, to make a profit in the U.S. Hmm. So that's a while. Wow. No wonder it took, since it took, you know, 19 years later that it, he had a hard time finding financing, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also his longest movie to date at 2.04, two hours and four minutes. It's another reason to like Woody Allen, right? You don't go uh, Peter Jackson. He didn't go Peter Jackson on us. <laughs> yeah. um, okay, so keep it or kick it. Is this going to be in your top five? Yeah, it's going gonna, it's <laughs> gonna to be in my top five. Um, I feel like this History of Violence and Brokeback Mountain, I rewatched all three mm-hmm. and it was like automatic. Yeah. Like I can't leave those three out. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure what's going to round it out. Mm-hmm. of you know in the top five usually you don't give give us give so many things away about your top five i know i know but it it's <laughs> it seemed very clear to me watching yeah. these that i i love all three of those movies yeah. and um they're all going to be in there this is an interesting situation for me because i saw all three of those mo- well no i saw match point before but a history of violence <laughs> and brokeback mountain i saw for the first time like in the past week or t- week or two and along with the couple others that are strong candidates for top five to me. So I really feel like this is, um, it, it really impacts the top five, like how recently you saw it, what, what's your first reaction to it? Because that might be a lot different from what it might, what it, what's going to be 10 years later, mm-hmm. 20 years later. Yeah. Um, this is definitely a, a strong candidate for top five. I guess I'm going to hedge and say, I'm not sure yet. But um, here's all the movies that we have done episodes on where someone gets away with murder. <laughs> yes. Gosford Park, In the Bedroom, Taxi Driver, Mystic River. Well, Taxi Driver, I, you know, I had a theory. That, yeah. Well, that. <laughs> <laughs> bogus theory, but, you know, uh, Mystic River, mm-hmm. Saw, A History of Violence, and Match Point. That's quite a few. In the next episode... We'll talk about episode three, a Retur- Return of the Sith, a Star Wars movie that Mike thinks is awesome. Isn't it Revenge of the Sith? Revenge of the Sith. What did I say? Return. Eh, Return, Revenge. They're interchangeable. That was embarrassing for you. We want to hear from you. <laughs> Send in your thoughts on Matchpoint on this show, on Revenge of the Sith, and we'll read them on the show. You can find us at bestpicturethis.com or wherever else you listen. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Best Picture This. And 15 years of Golden Takes. Head over to Letterboxd where you'll find me, Mike Cavalieri. Is Sith in your top five? <laughs> we'll see. To support the show and help select an episode for a bonus a, bon- a movie for a bonus episode, I should say. Visit patreon.com slash bestpicturethis. Thanks to WNZF and to the illustrious Mark Gilliland for producing. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Watch out for our new podcast we'll be launching soon, all about opera. You with me, Mike? No. no. Find a different co-host. <laughs> Kick it!